Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I hope your New Year was awesome and eventful and something to remember. Uh, how many of you fell asleep before midnight on New Year's Eve? It's okay. We're either getting older or we're just, we've seen so many things that uh, it doesn't shock us anymore, which means we're getting more awesome. Sometimes tired and awesome kind of intersect in the middle there somewhere. <laughs> um, if you are tired, I hope that you are tired from a productive year of pouring yourself out in a healthy way. If you're not, if you're tired because you're burdened and weary, uh, what I want to do this morning is to point your attention to a guy who does not grow weary, who does not get tired, who gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Someone who gives uh, new youth to those who have none, that they'd be able to run and uh, not be weary, that they would walk and not faint. Uh, We have been in Psalm 23 together for the past two weeks. This is our third week. We've got two more weeks, uh, this one included. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 23, and we're going to read, we've been reading the whole thing up until this point. I just want to read verse 5, and then we'll start going through it little by little. Psalm 23, verse 5. I always say that, but I just want to read the whole thing. It's just so good. (laughs) Okay, verse 1. New plan. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you with the excitement that a child would feel whenever his loving father speaks to him or her. And we have in your word, Lord, proof, written living proof that God speaks to his children. Here we are, God. We just want to throw ourselves at your feet. Sit on your knee, so to speak, and just listen to you speak. Speak to us. And God, for those of us that are having a hard time hearing, I pray that you would lead us beside still waters, that you would make us lie down in green pastures, that you would restore our souls, that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. For those of us that are suffering, I pray that we would, in the middle of that valley of the deepest shadow, not fear anything because of your real tangible presence. So may your presence be in this place even as we gather around you and may your word be heard by our thirsty souls and satisfy us. You alone have the words of eternal life. We want to satisfy our thirsty souls on your word today in in the name of Jesus. We pray this, amen. Amen. There is a book by C.S. Lewis, um, 
among many of his books that has simply created quite a stir. It's called The Screwtape Letters. I love this book. It's a really short one. Uh, many of you, I think, have read it. Um, but it's, it's simply put, a book that gives a, kind of an imaginative, it's a book of fiction, but it gives an imaginative view of the spiritual realm. It does it in a very ingenious format. The whole book uh, is written from the perspective of two demons. And so the this, this story goes, it's, uh, there's this conversation between two demons in the form of letters, one being uh, Uncle Screwtape, who's kind of an older demon, who's mentoring a younger demon uh, by the name of Wormwood, his, his nephew. And the whole book is written in this format of letters, Screwtape writing letters to his uh, younger nephew, uh, Wormwood. And the whole story is surrounding Wormwood's uh, uh, commission to take hold of this young man, this soul, and to destroy him, to take him to hell. And as the story unfolds, a guy gets saved and goes to a church and starts to grow. And this whole book is centered around screw tape, writing in these personal letters how to like thwart God's plan and how to uh, you know work through all of that stuff and what to do. And you know, as it's written from the perspective of demons, there's that language like they don't ref- they refer to God as the enemy and they refer to the devil as our father below and such vernacular like that. But there comes this point in the story where. After this man, who's uh, the, this demon Wormwood is tasked with destroying, gets saved, gets plugged into a church and a home group and all of that stuff and begins to grow, this uh, screw tape is starting to talk, trying to explain to Wormwood how the love of God works. And then he catches himself and he's like, well, uh, he, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read it because it's awesome. But he says, to, he says to Wormwood, the truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves these humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one talks or comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them, these humans? This is the insoluble question. What does he stand to make out of these humans? Now, even though this isn't a book of theology, you don't like read it as the Bible, it is an incredible and clever story. And that particular phrase captures this, this, this thing that God's enemies are flabbergasted about how God chooses to treat his people. That right there captures so vividly the feeling behind Psalm chapter 23, verse 5. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. If I can just focus all of our attention on verse 5. What we're looking at here is a picture of God's love. Now, I know God's love is like this big and we could talk for it you know, for years to come and, and we will. But if I could just pull out a nuance, if Psalm 23 verse 5 could pull out a few nuances, I think it would be this. The greatness of God's love, but also the scandal of God's love. I think that's all right here in this verse. It all starts in verse 5. We've gone through the first four verses, and you've noticed there's this metaphor that King David has been using of that of a shepherd and his sheep, right? Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in 
green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, paths of righteousness. All this lingo uh, used, this vernacular used by shepherds. Even in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, an actual ravine, a small, dangerous, dark place that a shepherd would have to bring their sheep through, your rod and your staff, all of this vernacular is shepherd speak. But in verse 5, the metaphor switches. He starts speaking about a table. (laughs) Sheep don't eat at tables. What's the table? Uh, couple authors, Anne Spangler and Lois Teverberg, experts in the, uh, uh, the Christian view of the Jewishness of Jesus, I could say, comment on this. They said the table in this era was much more than just a place to eat. It was a place of mutual trust and vulnerability. I want to bring you back onto the scene in the Middle East, into the ancient Middle East, the ancient Near East, when you would be invited into someone's home for dinner. Unlike the paintings that you might uh, concoct in your mind, like Leonardo's famous painting, where everyone's around a long table with silverware and chalices and all of that stuff, and wrong, great painting, but wrong. If you were to be brought into a Jewish home for dinner, you would be brought to sit on the ground. And there would be no silverware, there wouldn't be any kind of table settings like you and I would use. Your only table setting, your only utensil was a piece of bread that you would use to tear off and use that as a spoon and dip into a common bowl that everyone else dipped into. The seating arrangement was a circle around where the food was, where you would literally be laying down, reclining on the person next to you and you'd form this circle. The phrase reclining at the table is literal. You would actually lay down and, and recline in a community of people that were eating and sharing food. But it was much more than just a physical posture. In the ancient Near East, sharing a meal with someone was one of the most powerful things that you could do with another person. More powerful than just about anything. The table in, ancient Near, uh, in the ancient Near East spoke of an intimate friendship for you to open your door to someone or for someone to open their door to you and to bring you to their table to share food with them was the deepest act of vulnerability, trust, and friendship. So how is the metaphor changing in Psalm 23? Well, as F.B. Meyer comments, he says, the psalmist, therefore, here seems to say, I am more than just Jehovah's sheep. I am Jehovah's guest. It is a mark of great intimacy to sit with a man at his table. In the East, it is essentially so. It is not only a means of satisfying hunger, but of intimate and affectionate love. You may ask, well, what's on the table? Metaphorically speaking, in Psalm 23, what is God preparing for us on the table? Well, it would have literally meant in the ancient Near East, as it does today, to prepare a meal to prepare a table, if you were to uh, find this phrase in the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and Ezekiel, means to prepare an actual meal, food. And so we might be able to read into this with some justification, God covering our basic needs. And of course, we see that, right? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 and 11, God knows what you have need of even before you ask. And we are actually told by Jesus to pray for our daily bread. He cares about our clothing. He cares about our our needs, not our greeds. He cares about our food, about uh, shelter, all of those things. He cares. But I think we would be missing something if we stopped there. I think what Psalm 23 seems to be getting at most poignantly is our deepest need, that of belonging and fellowship. 
that of being brought into relationship. And as is the case with us and God, being brought back into a relationship that has been severed by sin. We see this come up in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this, listen to this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. There it is. One of our deepest needs as humanity, as human beings, is to be reconciled in our relationships, first to God, but also to each other, out of that relationship with God. It's all connected. But the point of this first line is that we are not merely sheep to be led and protected, although we are. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He certainly is those things. He leads us. We follow him. Christians are followers of Christ. He protects us. We are under his refuge. But that is not all we are. We are not merely sheep to be led and protected. If we were to take this at face value, we are also guests to be loved and embraced. When you add that second line, that he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of my enemies. That line suggests that the love that's shown at the table has a little bit of a scandal to it. That it's just scandalous enough to make at least somebody angry. Now if you want to have an idea or an understanding about how God shows love to people, you need to look no farther than Jesus. You can see explanations and definitions of God's love snippets of God's love all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So to look at how Jesus acts and to look at how he speaks is to look at how God the Father is. And whenever you look at Jesus, you see the heart of God's love in his teaching and in his life. And you see it at the table. You see it, whether it's the prodigal son, where it's not, it didn't actually happen, it's a parable that Jesus is telling, but he's telling something to explain something to you about God. And he tells a story about this prodigal son who squanders all of his father's wealth, all of his father's his inheritance. He goes and he squanders it on vices and on prostitution and all of this stuff. And then he comes back in rags and tatters and shame. And what greets him at the door but his father running out to, meeting him, uh, to meet him puts a ring on his finger, puts a, his favorite coat on his shoulders, and then what does he do? He throws a feast. He brings a fatted calf, his, his, the best meal that he could possibly concoct. He brings a prodigal son to a feast, a meal. Jesus is using a meal to give us a shred or a, a, a vignette of God's love for us. But we don't just see it in Jesus' teaching concerning meals. We also see it in the way that he ate meals. He ate meals with people like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He ate meals and he made meals for thousands of people, the 5,000. He was always eating meals with people. And in each of these cases, whether it was Zacchaeus, whether it was the prodigal son in the story, whether it was the 5,000, he always seemed to do it in the presence of those people's enemies. 
You have to understand that Zacchaeus, being a tax collector, was considered a traitor by his own people. For you to be a tax collector, you were probably Jewish. And to be a tax collector meant that you were taking money from your own people and giving it to the Roman occupying authority. For you to be a tax collector was the worst possible scum in that society. You were a traitor to your own people. Everybody hated you. If you were a prodigal son and you had squandered your dad's inheritance, that was one of the most shameful things that you could do in that culture. You know who his enemy was in the story? His older brother. The father shares a, a feast in the presence of the older brother. Jesus invites Zacchaeus to a meal in the presence of Zacchaeus' enemies. Even the 5,000 were fed on the heels of Herod killing Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. All of these meals happened in the presence of their enemies. So often do we see Jesus doing this kind of thing that the Gospel of Luke actually tells us that Jesus came eating and drinking. <laughs> Luke chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. For all you foodies out there, all you food snobs, this is like your proof text. You ought to underline and highlight this verse and use it for anyone that gives you any grief. Like, you eat too much. You're a food snob. Well, what would Jesus do? (laughs) It literally says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's like a mission statement in the Bible. And I'm not even making that up. It's been said that in the Gospel of Luke, anytime you see Jesus doing anything, he's either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or in the middle of eating a meal. Read the Gospel of Luke. You'll find it to be true. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. But after the initial laughs, after you guys are using this on each other, you're like, you're eating too much. We don't have enough budget for all of your food snobbery. And you're like, well, Jesus, just doing what Jesus would do, trying to be conformed to the image of God. Sorry. (laughs) Arigato sushi. (laughs) Honest person would have to ask at some point, well, why? Like, that, that's cool. I love that. But why? Because Luke is all about a king coming for his kingdom. And that king seems to be coming to eat. <laughs> Doesn't sound very kingly. What would we expect a, a, a powerful politician or leader or king to do? We'd perhaps expect them to come fighting, coming with swords and banners, maybe come protesting, maybe political lobbying. Maybe all sorts of different things. That's perhaps how I would come if I chose to be a Messiah. Jesus came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. Why would he do that instead of any other way that kings throughout history have come with blood and fighting and wrath and lobbying and protesting and all sorts of violent displays? Why would Jesus, the king of kings, come eating and drinking? It was, listen, It was to show and to usher in the kingdom of God. How? By turning his enemies into his friends. Every time Jesus had a meal with someone, it was specific. He didn't waste bread. Every person that he chose to eat with was a symbol of a greater purpose in his life. He ate for a reason. He ate meals for a reason. Now listen, sharing meals by itself, you're asking, what's the scandal of God's love here? I don't get it. Sharing meals in itself isn't scandalous. 
This was a normal thing to do in the, in the ancient, middle, uh, ancient Near East. It's a normal thing to do today. That's what most of us are going to do after church. Share meals with each other. But the normal way, the normal method of sharing a meal in that day, the normal social construct was with your friends. Or perhaps with someone who could share a meal back with you. It was sharing a meal with someone who could maybe pay you back later on. I don't know. Perhaps you were a Pharisee. In that day, you loved eating meals with people. But who did you eat meals with? You ate meals with other Pharisees. You ate meals with people that you wanted to make connections with. You ate peop- uh, meals with you ate people. <laughs> you ate meals with people <laughs> that were ritually clean. Remember, that was a big thing with the Pharisees. Ritually clean. So they also had to be theologically astute. They had to know what you knew and act like you acted and believe all the things that you believed. Now, to be ritually clean in that period required a lot of money. So you were also excluding a lot of poor people who can never afford to be ritually clean. So you're known by who you ate with. Now, maybe you weren't a Pharisee. Maybe you were a Greek or a Roman politician or an aristocrat. Who did you eat with? You ate with other people who could maybe give you a favor later on, right? We do that today. We pay our favors forward hoping that through karma or some connection that we've made, it will be paid back to us. What was scandalous about Jesus was not that he ate meals. It was who he ate meals with. He ate meals with people who could not pay him back. He ate meals and shared a table with sinners, with thieves, with the poor, with the destitute, with the hated, with the marginalized. He ate meals with people who could never hope to do anything back to him. I just want to show you an example of this in Matthew chapter 22. This story that Jesus, actually a parable. Whenever Jesus told uh, parables, they were often to give us a glimpse into the kingdom of God. He says in Matthew 22, I won't read the whole thing, but it's the parable of the wedding feast. The biggest meal in the face of history. Like, right? The one we're all waiting for. Lots of food. Great food. Everyone wants to go. And it says that he, this king, picture of Jesus, sent out all these invitations to people that were invited to the feast. I'm going to paraphrase it up until a certain point. And none of them came. It said in verse 5, they paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. It says in verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and uh, gets pretty Pretty violent. Destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Listen to this. Verse 9. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And in verse 10 it says, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is a parable explaining what the kingdom of God is like. All of these people that God invited, they didn't come for whatever reason, so he invited the people that were uninvited. He, un- he, he invited the people in the street, the undeserving, and he filled his wedding hall with guests who didn't deserve to be there. Imagine if we were to do this. Imagine if we just tried to do this. Throw parties the way that Jesus threw parties. Share meals the way that Jesus shared meals. You might be like, well, I do this all the time, like a party animal, socialite. You don't even know my my schedule, bro. I'm like out every night just partying with people. Like a party animal. 
but who do you eat meals with? Who do you invite into your home? Now, this isn't saying you can't eat meals with your friends. We should eat meals with our friends. That's biblical community. We should be having our friends, our Christian brothers and sisters over, and we should be over with them, and we should be uh, living life together. But what if once or twice we practice this on people who could never return the favor? What if we practice what Jesus would tell us in Luke 14, verse 13 and 14? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Because, here's the key phrase here, because they cannot repay you. Invite people who cannot repay you, who won't give you social connections, who won't be able to uh, invite you to a feast later on in life, who won't be able to do something for you later down the road. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This type of meal is a kingdom meal. Love what this author, Christine Pohl, uh, in her book on hospitality wrote, she said, a shared meal is the activity most closely tied to the reality of God's kingdom. Whenever Jesus ate with somebody, he was, he was teaching us something about the kingdom. Whenever he ate a meal, he was teaching people about the beauty of God's kingdom. Maybe, maybe that's why people got so angry at him. It wasn't just sharing like a shawarma with a buddy on the street like he was making a statement. Maybe Jesus made people mad because he was hospitable to the undeserving. In doing so, showing and teaching that the kingdom of God has come to those types of people. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Maybe in sharing meals with specific people, broken people, hurting people, undeserving people, sinners, maybe Jesus, in fact, clearly Jesus was making a statement. The kingdom of God has been made presently available to everybody. If you were a Pharisee, and you saw Jesus acting and speaking like that, you would immediately be angry. Why? Because you had worked your entire life to get into the kingdom of God. (laughs) You went to like 15 types of school. You learned multiple languages. You studied the Torah. You memorized it. You were ritually clean. You observed all of the 613 laws in the the, uh, Hebrew scriptures. You were blameless as much as you possibly could be as a human being. You lived your entire life living righteously so that you could get into the kingdom of God. And this nut job who calls himself the Messiah comes along and says, I'm bringing the kingdom of God to this prostitute who hasn't tried. In fact, who has failed miserably her entire life. Yeah. Bringing the kingdom of God to her. Not only does the kingdom of God come to people like that, but he also seemed to habitually shut people like the Pharisees out of it. He would say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the highest ranking Pharisee in the nation of Israel, you don't, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't even know what I'm talking about. You think you're born again? 
No one can be born, no one can enter into the kingdom of God lest he is born again. Nicodemus, the highest ranking scholar in all of Israel, is like, What do you mean, born again? Like, how did I go back? Like, rebirth? Like, what? Jesus is like, You're so silly. When he would constantly upend the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of these religious professionals. Perhaps they were angry because he was opening the kingdom to the undeserving and he was closing it off to them because of their pride. It wasn't just human enemies that Jesus was offending, by the way. It was spiritual ones as well. I love Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Everything you've ever done wrong, Christian, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How's that metaphor? Taking everything, every guilt, every uh, every ounce of shame, everything you've ever done wrong, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, taking everything that you've ever messed up at in life, nailing it to the cross where it is to be forgotten and dead. But listen to what he says after that. So that's the reconciliation. Look at the next line. He disarmed. Because of that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's phraseology for demons and fallen angels. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Oh my gosh. Do you know what that's saying? On the cross, Jesus humiliated the devil and his demons. On the cross, as he was bringing you closer, he was laughing at the devil. He was making them a laughingstock. In the cross, God's love and acceptance for the undeserving are so lavish and so excessive that it humiliated all of hell. And if hell is humiliated, what are you afraid of? Who are you listening to? If hell's mouth is shut, what, what guilty lie, what lie from who, who knows where it's coming from are you listening to? The gates of hell have been shut for you. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. The writer Laurie Schwartz wrote some time back, setting the stage for the story about Berlin in the middle of uh, the late 1930s, on the verge of World War II, bristling with Nazism, red and black swastikas flying everywhere, brown-shirted stormtroopers goose-stepping while Adolf Hitler was posturing and threatening, montage of evil being playing, uh, was being played as a uh, national, uh, the familiar Nazi anthem was being uh, blasted out through loudspeakers. This was the background for the 1936 Olympic Games. Aptly described as Hitler's Games. This was his pet project to prove to the world that there was one supreme race. His dreams were dashed because of one man, Jesse Owens. <laughs> The African-American son of a sharecropper and grandson of slaves single-handedly crushed Hitler's myth by winning gold medals in the 100-meter dash, the 200-meter dash, the long jump in the America, uh, American 4 by 100 relay team, rendering Hitler speechless. What was shocking and 
unnerving for me was not that story that many know so dear, but what actually happened after that. See, before the games actually took place, there was a little problem with the qualifying. Uh, Owens was having a problem with qualifying for uh, the games at all, whether by uh, maybe it was nerves, maybe it was the stage. Uh, Some writers suggest that the officials were being unfair to him, but whatever it was, with one jump remaining to qualify, this man by the name of Luz Long, a tall, blue-eyed, blonde German, long jumper, who was actually his stiffest competition, the one to beat, introduced himself and made a suggestion that he he changed the mark from where he he leapt off and play it safe. Owens did that and he qualified. In the finals that afternoon, Long took a fifth jump that matched Owens' 25, uh, 25-foot, 10-inch jump. But Owens, after that, leaped to 26 and 3 inches on his next, next attempt and won the gold medal with a final jump of 26 and 5.5 and inches. And guess what? The first to congratulate him was uh, the first to congratulate the Olympic gold medal record holder was Long himself, who, and I quote Larry Schwartz, Looked like the model Nazi, but wasn't. German through and through, Nazi not at all. Jesse Owens would later go on to say, it it took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. You can melt down all the medals and cups I have, and they wouldn't even be plating on the 24-karat friendship I felt for Loslong at that moment. Hitler must have gone crazy watching us embrace You prepare a table before us in the presence of my enemies. It's the sense of validation and belonging and friendship that moved Owens more even than winning gold medals. And who who even second-guessed that? Who in here doesn't want to belong and to feel loved and accepted? And this is the power of the shepherd's psalm. You're not just sheep. You're guests. It is brought bursting to life, not just in the psalm, but later on in the ministry and person of Jesus Christ, who would say in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This act of not only salvation, not only protection, not only guidance, but deep, intimate friendship at the Lord's table is so incredibly insane when you think about it. That even the Apostle Peter in one of his letters was saying that this salvation by Christ, by God in Christ, is so incredible. It is so unbelievable. It is so beyond what we should expect from any person, much less God, that even the angels long to look at it, the gospel. If I could rephrase what he's saying, it's almost as if the angels are on their tiptoes just looking like as the cross and the resurrection, the tomb, they're all uh, being enacted and that history is going down. You can almost picture the angels, what Peter is saying is like on their tiptoes like, what? What's happening? What's what's he doing? Gabriel, like, "Ah, I don't know. You have to understand, angels, every time angels are depicted in the Bible, they are incredible creatures. It's said in Isaiah chapter 6 that when the angels were singing the, the seraphim that the threshold of the temple were shaking. I don't know if you've ever seen the threshold of the temple, but there are stones in the threshold of the Jerusalem temple that weigh upwards of 22 tons. 
This imagery is trying to give us a sense of how powerful their voices are. Of course, their voices are later overshadowed by the voice of the Almighty God, but that's a digress. But angels, voices powerful enough to shake buildings. Later on, we see single angels defeating whole Assyrian armies, hundreds of thousands, hundred thousand of them. All throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, any time a person, even someone who loved God and knew God, encountered an angel, their reaction was always the same, super predictable, fell down on their face like a dead man. They thought they were going to die. These were not your typical Hallmark card, Cupid, baby, cute little flying things. These were ferocious creatures that stood in the presence of the almighty God in all of his consuming fire. And Peter says they're on their tiptoes, just wondering what God is going to do with people through the cross and the resurrection. Perhaps C.S. Lewis' story was not so far off after all. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 tells us that it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In other words, it wasn't to the angels that God gave rule and authority and power. It has been testified somewhere, author goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? But you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This would later be fulfilled in Christ, but it's this blanket statement about humanity in general that we get from the Psalms. The, the idea here is what is human beings that you even care about them? You made them lower than angels, and yet you're crowning them with glory and power. Angels on their tiptoes, what's going on? In other words, we were made lower than angels, but loved and trusted far more. Why wouldn't we be? We were made in the image of God. No wonder David would exclaim, you have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The way that you and I can experience that love, that scandalous, great love, is rather simple. And in those last couple verses, he says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. That symbol of oil and uh, that overflowing cup aren't a new thought coming up. It's rather just, it's simply driving home the lavishness of what has thus far been presented. God's love is too much. It's, it's exceedingly, abundantly beyond what we can imagine. God's hand of love and mercy towards you are more than you can imagine. You can't even fathom how much God loves you. It's too much. Oil in the ancient Near East was often very, very expensive fragrance. It's like a perfume perhaps mixed with olive oil or something of that nature, usually saved for special circumstances. You can read stories of this in like, I think it's Luke chapter 7. The woman anoints Jesus' head with, with oil, an alabaster jar. But those were very, well, uh, very expensive things. And we have this picture here of, our heads being anointed with just the wealth of God's love. And then our cup overflows. A particular scholar, uh, Kenneth Bailey, expert in the ancient Near East symbolism, wrote that the host here, giving us an idea here, he's saying that the host is right here pulling out all the stops. Here's what this language means. Host is pulling out all the stops. 
To change the metaphor, no stone is left unturned. In the host's effort to assure the guest that he or she is welcomed, honored, and beloved. Furthermore, the waiters are pictured here hovering over you, just, just hovering, just waiting. You ever been in a restaurant that was like just too good? They're just like, hey, you need any water? Like, I'm, you just came here like two seconds ago. Like, <laughs> okay, sorry. Water? <laughs> They're just like pictured hovering over you. He goes on to say, every time David takes a sip, one of them quickly rushes over to fill his cup. Actually, they're so eager to do things right that his cup overflows. The point of this passage in its entirety is that Jesus doesn't just lead you. He doesn't just guide you or tell you what to do or want to change you, although all of those things are true. And we should hope for those things, to be led by this great shepherd, to be changed and conformed into his image, to want to follow him into any place on earth. But that's not all that he is to us. He also loves you with a lavish, excessive, over-the-top love and wants to be close to you as a friend is to a friend. God wants to be friends. Yes, he wants to be Lord and Master. He also wants to be intimate. He wants to be friendly. How do I experience that, you say, if you've, if you've never followed Christ, maybe you're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian or not. You know, maybe I am. I think I prayed something sometime, like 1987, but I don't know if it did anything. Maybe you're doubting, you don't know. The route for you is simple. The action in this psalm is done entirely by God. He's the one who prepares a table. He's the one who fills your cup. He's the one who anoints your head with oil. He's the one who makes you lie down, who leads you, who restores you, who uh, brings you for his name's sake. He's the one who is with you. It's his saving initiative. Your responsibility, should you choose to accept it, is to simply receive it by faith. To say, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't even know what's coming next. But I see in Jesus someone worth following. And in that moment, perhaps your heart is being changed like Jesus would describe in John 3 to Nicodemus. You're being born again. There's something inside you that's just been changed and you just want to follow him. That's your first step right there. Follow him as a shepherd, but know him as a friend. But maybe you are a Christian and you would say, you know, I, I'm, I've been born again had some good times, also had some hard times. I know what I believe. I know who Christ is. I love him. I serve him. I'm following him. But perhaps for you, you're just weighed down by so many different thoughts. You know what you need to do? If you were to take this at face value, be free from lying thoughts and doubts about his love for you. That's where some of you are at today. Perhaps when this verse says, in the presence of my enemies, perhaps your worst enemy has actually been you, in your mind, going through all the things that you have done wrong and the ways that you have messed up and the things that have been done to you, replaying them in your mind. Maybe you, you, you've gotten to a place where you're just almost convincing yourself that you, you could never, you can never deserve or merit this type of love. Maybe 
you mouth it during worship songs. Maybe you pray it. Maybe you ask for it. But deep down in your heart, you don't believe it. And your life is a reflection of that. For you, I want... I want to show you where this psalm comes to its fullest fruition. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians, almost done, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is speaking about idolatry and people sacrificing food to idols and the Lord's table. Super crazy digression and tangent. Don't want to get into it today. But what I do want to, what I do want to bring our minds towards is uh, Paul is referring to the Lord's Supper. He keeps using this phraseology. He keeps saying, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the cup of demons. He keeps using that phraseology. The same exact phrase that King David uses in Psalm 23. In other words, the way that Paul thinks, the way that he seems to think, is that this psalm, that table, the table of the Lord, finds its most fullest expression in the Lord's Supper. In the table, with the bread, and in the cup. Meaning, That it is in the Lord's Supper by which Christ's followers continually reenact the story of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that when you take communion, your, your sins are being forgiven or then God accepts you. We know it's not through works that we're saved. We know that it's not through what we do that we're saved. This is for those who have been born again and have followed Christ. The Lord's Supper becomes that way that we continually reenact the story of the gospel. So here's what I want to do today. So worship team begins to usher us into a place of singing and worship. I want you to focus on this. That Jesus doesn't just bring you to the table of fellowship. He doesn't just grab you by the hand like an angry dad just yank you to the table. He died to provide you the life-giving meal. Christian, brothers and sisters, you are beloved by God. You are loved so deeply by God in heaven that he gave his most prized possession for you. Romans tells us that if God was willing to give his son, how much more will he give us everything? In a testimony of love that none of us could possibly imagine, but all of us have the ability to taste and see. God gives his son to prove to you that you are beloved by him. There isn't a devil in hell, an angel in heaven, a circumstance in life, a mistake in your past, uh, an uncertainty in your future that can change any of that. So if you're struggling with doubts today, Christian, If the devil is lying to you today about your identity, I want you to do this. I want you to stand up. As we begin to sing, I want you to stand up and I want you to pull your shoulders back like a confident son or daughter. I want you to lift your chin up. Not because you have done so well, but because Christ has done so well for you. And I want you to sing these songs like they're true. I want you to shout them into the ceiling. Let the roof just shake under the praise of this congregation that God's word is true and every man is a liar. Every man who comes against God's word. And for those of you that are up for it, those of you that have been born again, I want you to grab a piece of this bread. It symbolizes Christ's body and I want you to grab 
that bread and dip it into the cup which symbolizes his blood that washes our sins and the bread which was, speaks of his body that was broken to give us life and I want you to recline at the table of the Lord and feast on freedom in the presence of your enemies as we feast together that his mouth be perpetually shut up the devil as your identity is renewed in the image of your God that has been provided for you in the cross and it's yours Heavenly Father we ask now that you would by your spirit who is present today do all the work that you set out this morning to do in our hearts and our souls and our minds our relationships and our lives be magnified in the reconciliation of people back to their God. Heal us today. Bring us to the table. Where we didn't belong, bring us to the table. Friendship and love. We love you, God. We love you because you first loved us.